grab your Bible and turn with me to James chapter 1. James chapter 1. Every year on Mother's Day, I am reminded of how indebted I am to my mom and really both my parents. Uh, my entire faith foundation, who I am as a person and a Jesus follower, is owed to God's grace through my parents. They each taught me the important things about life, and they're both together my personal heroes. But since today is Mother's Day, I will focus on my, on my mom. So, Dad, if you're watching this, I am sorry. I do love you, too. But God gave me the best mom in the world. My entire childhood, she was just always there. I don't remember a time in my life when my mom wasn't there when I needed her. Every morning, every night, even in the middle of the night when we were sick or had a nightmare, she did it all with five kids. I don't know how she did it. <laughs> Being a mom is a full-time job. There are no days off. There are no lunch breaks or personal time. You don't even get a sick leave in motherhood. And honestly, I can't remember what, a time when my mom was sick. I don't think moms get sick. But my mom cared for me and my sisters, my four sisters, so well. But the thing that sticks out in my mind is how my mom also cared for others. Her responsibility to us didn't keep her from caring for other people, particularly those who were down and out. My mom has always had a heart for people in need. I remember so many times picking people up for church who didn't have rides. When people came into our home, my mom always made them feel welcome. Everywhere we went, she could pick out the person who was isolated or struggling, and she had a way of connecting with them and making sure they felt valued. In that way, my mom taught me to love like God. Over and over in the Bible, we see that God, as our perfect father, has a tender heart, especially for the vulnerable. Because we call God Father, we often mistakenly picture God as being just like our earthly father. So if your earthly father was distant or cold or harsh, then you may incorrectly think of God that way. Yes, God is a God of justice, but he's also a God who is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And when it comes to those who are weak or hurting or susceptible to being taken advantage of, God has an especially tender heart toward those people. We see that in verses about God's concern for the poor and the sojourner. We see it in Jesus' heart for children and the leper and the public outcast. And we're going to see it today in a famous verse from the New Testament book of James. This morning, we're going to take a break from walking through the book of Exodus. And I want to preach on a topic that I don't think we've ever given an entire message to. But with today being Mother's Day, a day when we honor the sacrificial love of moms, this is the perfect time to talk about this. I want to talk to you today about God's heart and the church's responsibility to care for widows and orphans. Let's start by reading the broader passage in the book of James, and then we're just going to zero in on the particular verse I want us to see. But look with me at James chapter 1, verses 19 through 27. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. 
For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. The book of James was written by the biological brother of Jesus. And I love this book because of how straightforward and clear James is. But that also makes it kind of challenging. James doesn't pull any punches. He cuts right to the heart of things. He's like that friend you have and just kind of tells it like it is. And James's main concern in this letter is that we live out our faith. The center part of this letter is the most famous passage about faith and works. He says that faith without works is dead faith. In other words, faith is not just something we mentally agree with or that we say that we have with our words, but it's something we demonstrate with our actions. And we see that here, don't we, when he talks about doing the word. James says someone who truly receives God's word, they don't just hear it, but they do it. And that's what this whole book is about. Next, James begins to describe practically some ways that faith is lived out. He talks about controlling your tongue. Mm, that's a whole other sermon. <laughs> but then he says this, and here's the verse I want us to focus on, James 1, 27. He says, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this. You ready? To visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Now let's break this verse down and see what it means. And then we're going to flesh out its application for us today. James begins here by talking about religion. We often use that word religion today in a negative way. We think of religion as some sort of cold, lifeless ritual. But here James is talking about religion simply as your set of beliefs, your worship of God. There certainly is a kind of bad religion that becomes more about performance or just checking the right boxes. But all of us have a religion. All of us have a set of beliefs that guide our lives and our worship. So James says the kind of religion that we should want to have is one that is pure and undefiled. Another way to say this is religion that is genuine or true or real. It's not fake or phony. It's not a show or a performance. It's a real faith with God. Notice that James says religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father. James didn't have to call God Father here. He could have just said pure and undefiled before God. But he adds in this description of God as Father. This is one of the most common ways to identify God in the Bible. It speaks of God's loving, gentle care for his people. Let me say this as a brief aside. I have found that a lot of people have a difficult time thinking of God as gentle and tender. I was one of those people. There is a book that you need to read. It's a book called Gentle and Lowly. It's one of the best books I've read over the past few years, and here's the best part. This book is available for free right here in our church library. Ladies and gentlemen, did you know we have a church library? This is a shameless commercial, a shameless plug, okay? Right here on our campus, 
right outside these doors, across from the ladies' restroom. That's the library, and it is a treasure trove of resources to help you grow in your faith from little kids all the way to adults. And guess what? It's totally free. There's no fees, no fines, no library cards to lose. So if you have never been in our church library, shame on you. (laughs) Fix it today, okay? Go by there, at least look, and maybe, just maybe, you might find something that you want to check out, okay? Plug finished. All right, back to my point. James called God our father. God relates to us as children. He deals gently with us as sons and daughters, and that's so important for what he says next. He says, true and undefiled religion is this, to visit orphans and widows and their affliction. Let's think first about this specific group, orphans and widows. In the first century context, these two groups of people were on the lowest rungs of society. I know this is a word thrown around a lot today, but they were truly oppressed. In this time, women were not valued in society as much as men, and therefore couldn't provide as well financially. So if a family lost their husband and father, they lost the primary breadwinner. They became financially and materially destitute. They were looked on with pity and often taken advantage of by others. Because of this, orphans in the first century weren't just children who had lost both parents, but a child who had lost a father was also considered an orphan. That meant homes who lost the male figure often had both a widow and orphans in one house. These were impoverished families with virtually no way to contribute to society. They often were forced to turn to begging on the street or prostitution just to survive. This is who James is talking about. And his concern for this group, it's not unique to him. Rather, he's picking up on something that we learn about from the Old Testament. That God has a particular concern for orphans and widows. Listen to just a few of these verses. Psalm 68 says, Father of the fatherless and protector of widows is God in his holy habitation. Isaiah 1 says, Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Psalm 146 says, The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless, but the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. And listen to how strong this is in the law God gave to Israel in Exodus 22, which we're about to see in a few weeks. God said, you shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry and my wrath will burn and I will kill you with the sword. (laughs) And your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless. Man, it's pretty intense. Why does God care so much about orphans and widows? Yes, God's loving and kind and good. Those are certainly reasons he cares for them and their need. But God is also fair and just. And this causes him to gravitate particularly toward those who are in need and could be taken advantage of. My discipleship group recently read through all of the minor prophets. We have one more to go. And yes, I know we are very spiritual. Um, Kidding, but it was fascinating. You know, we don't read those books as much, and I was struck by how many of the messages from the prophets were about the things that God was going to judge them for. And there were the usual things you'd expect that they were dealing with, you know, idolatry, 
sexual immorality, violence. But then God would drop in right on the same level as those things, dishonest scales. Like scales for weighing things. <laughs> I'm thinking, okay, that's what you're worried about, God? Like the dishonest scales? Is, is that a big deal? But we got to understand that in ancient times, cost and value was determined by weight. So if you rigged your scale when you sold something, you were cheating people and defrauding them, often those who were poor. And that dishonest practice was important enough to God that he said he was going to judge his people for it. Again, that speaks of God's heart for justice. It's unfortunate that terms like justice and equity have become loaded terms and hijacked political phrases. You can't even talk about alleviating poverty today without sounding like you're supporting a political agenda. But that's not the case. You cannot read scripture without seeing God's heart for the vulnerable. He uses his strength and power to defend the weak and the powerless. He wants to lift up the downtrodden and right wrongs. He is a God of justice and righteousness. That is his character. And that's why he has a special affection for orphans and widows. So that's what James is building on when he tells us to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. To do so is to touch the very heart of God. That verb to visit means more than just going and spending time with them. That verb means to act on their behalf. It's the same word that is used to describe God visiting his people in Egypt in slavery. It's to take action for someone, to support them uh, in their need. That word affliction means distress or trial. Uh, the idea here, when we put it all together, is that true religion, religion that is pure before God, religion that God affirms and that is pleasing to him, is manifested in caring for and supporting tangibly the needs of orphans and widows. It's to alleviate their suffering and give them a real-life view of God's heart for them. It's quite simply to love them in the biblical sense of the word, which is to love with action. So to summarize that first part, here's our first point. Number one, true Jesus followers champion the forgotten. James then ends verse 27 with what seems kind of like attack on, like it's totally unrelated. He says, oh, 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 yeah, keep yourself unstained from the world. And that makes sense. We know that we should live holy lives as Christians and not love the world or the things of the world. But why does James say that here? In the same breath, he talks about orphans and widows. Well, I don't think it's an accident. I think there's a connection. I believe what James is doing is saying that being stained by the world includes adopting the world's values concerning people. See, the world doesn't value orphans and widows, so he's saying we should not be stained by that thinking. I also think this is what James is getting at because of what he says next. Keep reading with me. James chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. It says, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and you say, you sit here in a good place, 
while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet? Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who, have, who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. James is addressing an issue, presumably, that was taking place in the early church. When a wealthy person came in the doors, they were greeted and paid attention to. They were given the good seat in the house, which in the Baptist church is in the back. Right? And when a poor person came in, they were ignored. And they were told to sit on the ground. This is what I mean when I talk about the world's values. See, the world values money and power and prestige. And the people who have those things get what they want. You value, you're supposed to value those who can do something for you. That's partiality. It's playing favorites or having a bias toward one kind of person over another. And James makes clear a few verses later how he feels about that. He says in verse 9, But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. This goes back to the idea that God is a God of justice. To show partiality or favoritism is unjust and therefore wrong. So here's our second point this morning. Number two, true Jesus followers reject favoritism. As followers of Jesus, we are to reject the world's values and keep ourselves unstained by them. Rather than gravitating toward the strong or those we deem useful or who have something to offer us. We instead should gravitate those, those who the world belittles and rejects. We should value what God values, the weak and the downtrodden. And in doing this, we make visible the gospel of Jesus. Because think about it. Listen to me, guys. If God did not have a heart for the vulnerable, you and I would not be saved. If God was only for those who were strong and holy and have it all put together, we would be toast because that ain't us. Bible says we're weak in our sin. We're spiritually poor. We're dead in our trespasses. We're slaves to sin. It's just like those who are physically vulnerable and downtrodden. We are all spiritually poor and downtrodden. In that sense, we're all spiritual orphans and widows. And yet that's exactly who Jesus said he came to save Mark chapter 2, Jesus says, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. 1 Timothy 1, Paul said this. He said, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of who I, Apostle Paul, am the foremost. In Romans 5, he said, But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So Jesus didn't come to the earth and show up and say, all right, let me find the best people to save. Let me see who's worthy, who's spiritual enough for me, who's going to do the most good for my mission. No, he gravitated toward those most in need. The prostitute, the tax collector, the leper, the paralytic, the Samaritan woman. Think of all the stories you know about Jesus. His heart was for the vulnerable. So it's no surprise then that his saving us is compared to marriage and adoption. Think about this. This is amazing. <laughs> Think about it. 
Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 5 that marriage is a picture of the gospel. We are the bride of Christ. Jesus is our groom. Spiritually, we are like widows who Jesus gave his life for to make us his spotless bride. And we will never be alone or widowed again. That's really the encouragement to widows and widowers. We have some in this room. And the rest of us, many of us in this room who are married or who will be married, will one day be widows or widowers. Losing a spouse is a reality a lot of us will face, and really we should prepare for by fixing our eyes and our hearts on Jesus. Because even though we may lose our earthly spouses, we will never lose or be separated from him. This is why Jesus said in Matthew 22 that there will be no marriage in the resurrection or in heaven. That doesn't mean we won't know our spouses in heaven or love them and see them. I believe all our earthly relationships will continue and be even greater in eternity. But what Jesus is saying is that the institution of marriage will no longer be necessary. Marriage is a temporary sign pointing to the ultimate reality of what Jesus has done for us and making spiritual widows his eternal bride. We see the same thing with the picture of adoption. When a mom and a dad decide to adopt an orphan child, they are choosing to take a child who is not connected to them biologically and make them their child for life. I got an opportunity last month to go to the courthouse here in Johnson County and watch our director of early childhood, Jen Kepis, who you saw up here earlier, and her husband, Steve, I got to watch them finalize the adoption of their son. And it was such an amazing experience. The judge came in, and first time I've ever seen a judge smiling. And she said, she said, by choosing to adopt this child, he is now legally your son. And then she did something. I'd never seen this before. She legally changed his name on the spot. She said, this is who you were. This is who you are now. And his name became the name of his new family. Man, I just thought, this is what God has done for us in Christ. And listen to this from Galatians 4. It says, in the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption. As sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. So when we were saved by Jesus, we were adopted into His family. We went from orphans to sons and daughters of the King of the universe. And now we have a new name, and we have a new identity in Christ, and we have a new family. This is why we call one another. Brothers and sisters. I grew up in a Baptist church in the South, and we always called our pastors brother so-and-so. But really, we should call every believer our brother or our sister because we've been joined together as family. And our spiritual family is united by something much greater than biology or DNA. We're united by the blood of Christ. So listen to me. This is the encouragement for those of you who have lost family, brothers, parents, sisters, children, 
Maybe those of you who have longed for children and been unable to have them to this point. Maybe those of you who have no idea who your biological family even is. Maybe they've disowned you, want nothing to do with you. Listen to me. In Christ, these people in the church are your sons, your daughters, your parents, your grandparents, your brothers, and your sisters. No matter what has happened to your biological family or hasn't happened, nothing can change or take away your spiritual family, for we will be together in perfect unity for all eternity. There will be no orphans in heaven. There will be no widows and widowers in heaven. So since marriage and adoption are pictures of the gospel, since God's heart is for the vulnerable, since Jesus came to die for the weak and needy, When we love and care for orphans and widows, we display the gospel in the most beautiful way. We live out God's love in Christ so that others see Jesus in us. We make visible the truth that Jesus saves. That's why James and the whole Bible encourage us in this ministry. And I want to close out our time with some specific ways that you can live out this calling to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. First, let's think about specific ways we can love the widows in our midst. We have a number of widows and widowers right here on our Ridgeview campus. I'll also add in those senior adult ladies and men who were unmarried for other reasons. Let me ask you guys, do you know their names? Do you know them personally? We have a direct responsibility for their well-being. A lonely widow, an uncared for widower, a widow in need is a crisis in the church. So much so that in Acts chapter 7, the apostles had to call a whole meeting and appoint new leadership to make sure all the widows were cared for. This is how we got the ministry of deacon. Those who were called to be deacons have the primary ministry of caring for the widows in our church. But as we've seen, that doesn't absolve the rest of us from that responsibility as well. So how can you come alongside and visit widows in their affliction? Let me encourage you to consider a couple things. Let me encourage you to consider adopting one of the widows in our church as a spiritual mother or grandmother in your family. Take them out to eat. Invite them to your home. Call them to see if they need anything and then meet that need. Check on them at holidays and birthdays and anniversaries. Spend time with them and remind them that they are loved and valued in the body of Christ. Because you know what? Many of us will one day be in that very position. We will have lost a spouse and be shattered with grief. What would you want your church to do for you in that day? Do that for the widows and widowers in our church. I truly believe if we neglect this calling, so help us, God. I believe he'll judge us in our church because this is that important. Lastly, let's think about specific ways we can love the orphans in our community and world. In the state of Kansas right now, we have over 6,000 children in foster care. Johnson County has one of the largest numbers with 451 children in foster care right now. The number one reason... In Kansas and Johnson County, that children are removed from their home is physical abuse. What are we going to do about that? How can you visit the orphans in our community and their affliction? 
Let me start with the big one. And let me encourage those of you who qualify to consider fostering and or adopting children in need. Biggest need today is for fostering and adopting teenagers. I know that is a life-altering decision. That is a huge thing to do. But it is one that gives the greatest testimony of what Christians believe. Would you at least pray about it? Would you at least consider it and see what God does? Adoption and fostering may not be possible for many of us, but we can at the least support those who do. Adoption is expensive. Did you know that? It is a tragedy that in America today you can abort a child for a fraction of the cost to adopt. Could you help fund a Christian couple's adoption? There are a lot of other ways we could support orphan care. We could give adoptive parents and foster parents a respite for a day or a weekend. We could babysit so they could have a date night out. We could volunteer at and support ministries that are dedicated to orphan care. We could use our voices and our influence to speak up for those who can't speak for themselves. And we could all be spiritual parents and grandparents to children in need right here at church by serving in our little kids, our big kids, and our student ministries. And above all, we can pray. We can pray for those who are orphaned around the world and right here in our own community. To visit orphans and widows in their affliction is true religion. It's the real deal. It's authentic faith, and it brings glory to God. And if you look back in history, I think there is no better example of this than a man by the name of George Mueller. George Mueller was a pastor in England in 1834 when he became burdened, walking down the street one day, seeing homeless orphans. In this time, there was little care for those children, so most begged for food on the street or lived in terrible conditions in what they called poorhouses. So Mueller believed God was calling him to do something kind of crazy, to open up his own orphanage and to do so without asking a single person for financial help or taking out any debt. Instead, he felt God leading him to just pray. And what happened next was decades of recorded miracles where God answered literally thousands of prayers. He began with renting just one home for 30 orphan girls, and then he went on to build five homes and care for over 10,000 children. And every single home, piece of furniture, clothing, food, everything was freely given. Sometimes they would just show up at the door. And the amount of money he prayed in totaled today Today's money, over $10 million. Mueller never took a salary, and neither he nor a single orphan ever missed a meal. George is a testimony to what God can do when we align our heart with his. God desires to care for the least of these, the vulnerable, and he desires to demonstrate that care through you. All he asks is that we step out in faith and follow Jesus and he will take care of the rest. So what about you? How might God be calling you today on this Mother's Day to serve and sacrifice for those in need like many of our mothers did for us? Whether that be widows or widowers, children with no parents, or anyone else who is suffering, this is true religion.
before God, our Father. Would you pray with me?